0: Let's turn in God's Word then to the Book of Acts, Acts chapter 23. As we meet a man this evening by the name of Lysias. If I had simply asked you who he is before you received the bulletin on Thursday and read the passage, wondering if how many of us would have known who he is. I would confess to the fact that if you had asked me two months ago who is Lesias, I probably would have said, not sure, somebody who was a friend of Paul, who was perhaps on one of the missionary journeys, somebody maybe in the book of Romans at the 16th chapter where Paul lists a whole bunch of people he wants to thank for being partners with him in the gospel. That probably would have been my guess. But as we open up God's Word this evening, we find that this man plays a very, very important role, not only in the life of Paul, but also in the gospel ministry. But perhaps even more so, he is a reminder to us in the day and age in which we live of the sovereignty of our God. So we're going to pick up the events as uh, they are recorded in Acts chapter 23. We In order to to create uh, the full uh, picture that Scripture gives, of we we have to go back from here, but I needed a Scripture passage to read, and I couldn't begin reading at chapter 21 and read through all the way through chapter 24. Uh, That perhaps would have been a little cumbersome tonight. So we're we're narrowing our focus down uh, to the verses that we have indicated here, verses 12 through 35. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the consul, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you. As though you were going to determine his case more exactly. and We are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the consul tomorrow, as though, he were going to, as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of the men are lying in ambush for him, and have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dispute dismiss the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their consul. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him out. To you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from cilicia he said i will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive and he commanded him to be guarded in herod's praetorium thus far the reading of god's word let's bow in prayer dear lord we thank you for this word that you have given us this evening we thank you that it is something that we don't normally read that you will help us to understand it to learn it better we pray that you'll be with pastor bob as you give his him the wisdom that we need to hear as well we ask this in jesus name amen and amen three points one he is a man with two names secondly he is a man with the responsibility And then thirdly he is a man used by the lord he's a man with two names There you find it. It's pretty obvious to us in the 26th verse of the 23rd chapter. His name is Claudius Lysias. Two names. Claudius, first of all. It's a Roman name that was most likely adopted by him when he purchased his citizenship at a large sum of money. Now, that's not speculation. If you go back to Acts chapter 22, verse 28... Um, In a previous exchange with Paul, he discloses to Paul that his citizenship was a bought citizenship for a large sum of money. He's somewhat amazed that Paul is a natural-born citizen. Lysias is a citizen of Rome, but he's a citizen of Rome because it had been purchased. Which led me down the pathway of asking the question, well, how did somebody become a citizen of Rome? And there were only four ways by which you could gain this Roman citizenship, this valued Roman citizenship of the day. One, the most common way was to be born from two Roman citizens. So if your mother is a Roman citizen, if your father is a Roman citizen, then you have Roman citizenship. Not if your mother, but not your father. So one didn't do it. It took both parents to establish a line of Roman citizenship. That's one way. Two, one could obtain citizenship as a reward for military service. Uh, some of you perhaps have watched uh, perhaps movies about uh, the Roman Empire and remember uh, perhaps gladiators fighting and so on and and seeing men who were commanders and they're they're relatively older men and you go, why are they still in it? Because if you serve the Roman Empire as in the military, somewhere between 20 to 25 years it granted you citizenship. So if you survived all the wars, if you survived marching all over the world, you got to be a Roman citizen which would have been a blessing not only for you, but for your family as well with lots of privileges. Also, Roman citizenship could be conferred through the emancipation of a slave from the house of a Roman citizen. These people are referred to as freedmen, and uh, that was another way in which citizenship could be gained. But there is another way as well, and that is through an imperial conference and the way this worked was one of two ways either the emperor as well let me give you an example the example of the city of Philippi is an example of this the emperor confers upon the city of Philippi their right to be Roman citizens he simply makes that declaration He had his own reasons. He had his own purposes. As I've told you before, Philippi had a lot of uh, silver and gold, so there was a reason to be, you know, pretty nice to this people of Philippi. So he could just confer it. Or, by audience, you could request from the emperor to become a citizen. Now, somebody pretty high-ranking had to be a friend of yours. Somebody who who was pretty high up in the the government of the Roman Empire had to be able to have the ear of the emperor to say, hey, you know, I'm I'm just requesting that you listen to so-and-so. Now, that was for you making the request. That could have been a head-severing event, okay? Because if the emperor goes, what are you requesting that for? I hate that man. And you want him to have citizenship? Now I hate you and you're dead. So you, this had to be a pretty solid and firm situation. Nobody of a questionable reputation is ever going to go to the emperor and, and request citizenship for somebody who is no good. And that appears to be the way, because when you went through this process, You also brought along a large sum of money as a thank you gift to the emperor. So you let the emperor know ahead of time, I have a gift for you. I have a thank you gift. The emperor would probably say, well, what is it? And then you'd show him what you planned to give to him. And the emperor would say, yeah, I'll, I'll give you the status. Now, you might say, why is his name Claudius? Because once you became a citizen, you also took a Roman name in honor of the person who granted you the citizenship. Emperor Claudius uh, reigns uh, the Roman Empire somewhere around, I think it's 45 to 51, 54 A.D., somewhere in that time frame. Something that would fit the time frame in which we're dealing with here uh, of Lysias. So that's probably a whole lot more you wanted to know, but it's important. that, That establishes for us who this man is. That this man is a Roman citizen who has been granted that citizenship after paying a large sum of money. So his status compared to Paul's natural born citizenship is one in which he would look at and say, Wow, to be a natural born citizen, that's quite something. Because you've had it since birth. Your whole life, you've been a Roman citizen. I've had to buy mine. I've had to purchase mine. The second thing is that his second name is Lysias. That is Greek. So we know that this man is not Roman. It, It all fits together. This is probably his natural name. This is the name his parents gave him. This is the name he had at birth. But now, in his status, especially, you see, as he's writing this formal letter in verse 26, he's stating his given name. Now, he's probably doing that, you know, as well, to say, look, I'm not just a Greek citizen. I'm not just a a Greek uh, person who happens to be in the Roman army. I am somebody who has standing." I am a Roman citizen, and I am addressing you formally, not only as a Roman citizen, but also as a military commander in regards to this matter about Paul. So he's a man with two names. Secondly, he is a man with a responsibility. He is referred to as the tribune. Sixteen times, actually, and I think it's from chapter 21 through 24, this man is referred to with that title. Scripture wants us to know what his job is. Scripture wants us to know what his responsibility is. So you say, well, what's a tribune? A tribune is a man who has been given charge of between 600 and 1,000 Roman soldiers. And it would probably be safe to say that Claudius Lysias is on the higher end of that. You say, why do you say that? Because note, if you go to 23 and 24 of chapter 23, what he's willing to part with. So he's got his men stationed there in Jerusalem. But he's willing to part with... What do we have here? We have... 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. So he's ready to let go of 470 men. Knowing that Jerusalem is a hotbed, it probably would put us on the fact that that he's not going to part with that many men unless he has somewhere near the thousand men under his command. These thousand men, very important, are housed in the fortress of Antonio. Now, for those of you who have, Antonia, excuse me. For those of you who have interest in historical things, it's called that because Herod built it. And he called it that name after Mark Anthony, who Herod was trying to be in league with and so on to to win graces there. The importance, though, is that it's located right next to the temple. That's where Claudius, Lysaeus, is a commander. He is a commander of the Roman forces of Jerusalem. Now who does Rome pick to be that commander? To be in charge of the military men? To actually be in charge of the the men whose feet are on the ground, who are actually charged with the responsibility of keeping peace and order in Jerusalem. A hotbed of rebellion. You're going to have to pick somebody who's tough. You're going to have to pick somebody whose skin is not thin. Because they're going to get called names. They're going to be... Laughed at, they're going to be mocked by these Jewish citizens. You're going to have to be tough. You're going to have to be prepared for death. Sitting in Jerusalem was not sitting on the banks of Key West soaking up the sun. Paul, earlier, is accused of being an Egyptian revolutionary. That revolution had led to the result of several Roman soldiers dying. You've got to be tough. You've got to be ready. You've got to be prepared. You, you've got to be somebody who is prudent. You've got to be somebody who is able to negotiate. You've got to be somebody who can handle these religious zealots, these Jewish people who three times a year go religiously off the end as far as a Roman citizen is concerned with this worship at this temple that they've got and hundreds and thousands of pilgrims come streaming into this you've got to be pretty prudent you don't want you've got to be pretty careful in your choice of words you have to be wise you have to be somewhat of a politician while remaining very, very tough. This is the man. This is his responsibility. These are his names. Now the question is, why is it that God puts this man's name in Scripture? Why are we reading about this? Why do we find out about this man? And that leads us to our third point tonight that this is a man who is used by the Lord. First of all, he is used by the Lord to protect Paul on two occasions. Let's go back. Acts chapter 21. Paul has come to Jerusalem. We're going to pick it up at verse 27 in our scripture reading. Okay, that's where we're going to pick it up. But Paul has come to Jerusalem. We're, I, I will tell you that, that there's probably no preacher, there's probably no biblical commentator who is settled on why Paul went to Jerusalem. There's things about a vow, there's things about him going to the temple, there's things about him offering sacrifices. And the whole thing is very unsettling. We also have indications in Scripture that God warned him not to do this, but Paul did it anyway. And part of what we're reading is the fact that Paul didn't do what the Lord wanted him to do. He did it, but he shouldn't have. You dare say that about the Apostle Paul? Absolutely. The Apostle Paul would say none less about himself. I am the chief of sinners, says Paul. The good that I would I do not, and the evil that I would not that I do. Why it is that Paul cannot tear himself away from from this trip to Jerusalem and the temple and the sacrifice, why he made the vow, that's probably a question that will only be answered in the halls of glory. But he went, and it caused a riot. Pick it up at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen from... Trimophas, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. See what's going on? We're shutting the gates. Why? Who are we keeping out? By shutting the gates, who's left on the outside? A garrison of soldiers. Now, why do they want the gates shut? 31. And as they were seeking to kill him. See, the Jews are trying to kill Paul. They're beating him up. Literally trying to beat him to death. Within the temple courtyard. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Now, we know from chapter 23 who this is, right? This is Claudius Lysias. He's the tribune. Word comes to the tribune. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, oh, fake news then days too. He ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed crying out, away with him. He protects Paul. He, in his authority as the tribune, comes down to the temple. There is this ruckus going on that they can obviously hear, and he's been reported. What does the military commander of Rome do? You act wisely, you act prudently, but you also act tough. He seizes the man You can't fault him for seizing Paul. He has no clue what's going on. He has no clue what's happening here. All he sees them, they're beating this guy up. Some people are yelling one thing, some people... He can't learn the truth. You come with me. Basically, for your own protection, come with me. Now, if you read the rest of the story, what you're going to find out is that he doesn't always... He, he, he's still not quite got it because it's not once again until Paul tells him, I'm a Roman citizen, that he goes, oh, what have I done? Because he arrested Paul without the trial and of course he's violating Paul's rights and then he finds out Paul is this natural born citizen and of course he's concerned about his own status. That's why somewhat the euphemistic letter that we read out of chapter 23 yes he's trying to cover his own trail he's trying to make himself look as good as possible in the situation in the hopes that Paul doesn't blurt out hey this guy arrested me without my rights to a trial but he does protect him not only there but think about the chapter in which we read from chapter 23 these Jews are insistent. Not going to eat till Paul's a dead man. It's overheard. It's reported. Who's it reported to? To a centurion. Who the centurion reported to? To the tribune. Who's the tribune? Claudius Messiah. What does he do? Huh, I'm not going to do what the Jews want me to do. I'm not going to lead this man to his death. Quick, get me 470 soldiers, mount up, move out. We're on the way out of here, protecting Paul. In fact, don't make the guy walk, put him on a horse. He's a Roman citizen, you know. He needs to be protected. They take him all the way to Caesarea, far from Jerusalem, in the night. See, before anybody finds out, this guy is already moving Paul out of the vicinity, out of the area, out of this hotbed to a place of safety, a place of protection, a place that in many respects, Caesarea is more Roman than it is Jewish. He'll be safe there. So two times, this man protects Paul. Secondly, secondly, This is a man used by the Lord not only to protect Paul, but also to promote the gospel. You say, how did he do that? Let me take you on the journey of what happens here. Well, actually, if we we pick up the story at verse 37, let me just read it, okay? Verse 37 of chapter 21. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And then they have this exchange in Greek and so on. And the guy, Paul says, just let me talk to the people. Just let me address this crowd. The tribune allows Paul. See, he could have said, there's no way I'm going to let you go out there again. There is no way I'm going to let you speak. See, Paul asks permission because it is the Tribune, it is Claudius Lysias, who has the right to make this decision. And he says, Paul, go ahead and speak. If you read through chapter 22, chapter 22 is Paul's testimony. Chapter 22 is Paul speaking to this crowd of Jews seeking to explain how it is he came to Christ, why he came to Christ, and that they should come to Christ. Now, if Claudius Lysias does not grant Paul permission, the gospel is not preached upon the steps of the temple that day. But further than that, when we leave off the story, where is Paul? Paul is in Caesarea. What? Awaiting a trial. With who? Felix. You remember the accounts, the latter part of Acts? Paul very forthrightly addresses not only Felix but also Festus with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So much so that that one of those men says, boy, Paul, you know, you almost persuade me. You almost persuade me. Opportunity. See, if he had kept Paul in Jerusalem, if he had just turned him over to the Jews and said, kill him. Those opportunities to preach the gospel to those governors would not have happened. To kings. Do you know where this all results in? It results in Paul going to Rome. Paul on a shipwreck, preaching the gospel to those who are gathered. People coming to know Jesus Christ. Paul going to Rome, proclaiming the gospel in Rome. Perhaps even to the household of Caesar, as is indicated in some of the epistles. See, step back. Do you see what this man does? I mean, he doesn't realize it. He's not really aware of it. He's not doing it intentionally. His purpose isn't, yeah, I want the way of Christ to be preached to everyone. I want everybody to come to know Christ. But he is being used by the Lord, by his position, by his standing, by the person he is to give opportunity for the gospel message of Jesus Christ. People heard about Christ because of this man's decisions used by the Lord thirdly he is a man used by the Lord to provide testimony see that's what the letter is that we read what is the letter in effect saying is the letter saying Paul is a scoundrel I think he's guilty We ought to chain him up. We ought to put him in prison. And perhaps we even ought to execute this guy. This guy is a troublemaker from the word go. Now he could have said that. Because he has plenty of evidence. All he's got to do is look at the riot in Jerusalem. This guy has caused chaos. But what does the letter say? In effect. It's Pilate, isn't it? I find nothing worth charging in this man. He hasn't said anything that is worthy of imprisonment or death. Here is the man who is the Roman tribune of one of the hardest places for the Roman soldiers to operate a man who probably has a whole laundry list of hatred and antagonism against Jews. And yet the Lord moves his hand. Claudius, Messias, the governor. I find nothing wrong with this man. There even seems to be indications, if we go further into chapter 24, verse 22, that at one of the trials before the governor's tribunes were called in. And most Bible commentators believe that probably it is Claudius Lysias, who is asked to stand before them and tell them the story and the events of what happened. And again, to declare Paul innocent. A man used by the Lord. To protect, to promote the gospel, to provide testimony. If you said, yeah, that's all nice, but what's that got to do with you and I? What's that got to do with us here, little farms? August 20, 2017. This man was used by the Lord to prove God's sovereignty. That's what you and I need to step back from this passage and see. And let me show you three ways in which this is happening. One, it's God's sovereignty over events. See, even Paul's wrong decision to go to Jerusalem, God is sovereign over. Even the events of the hatred of the Jews against Paul, God is sovereign over. Did you see what happens? Paul goes to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice which ties us back into the New Old Testament. But what does God do? God turns the event around so that it becomes a proclamation of the Gospel. Those who are trying to limit these Jews who are trying to limit the extent over which the Gospel is is, is going. They're concerned because it seems like people from Alexandria are becoming Christian. People from Tarsus are becoming Christian. People from Philippi are becoming Christian. People from Corinth are becoming Christian. Boy, what's going to happen if that makes it to Rome? (laughs) It made it to Rome. They tried to stop it. But God is sovereign over the events of the world to accomplish His purpose. Sit back and evaluate the last two months of life. Upon this planet. Do you know that tomorrow is an eclipse? Do you know that? (laughs) How could you not by this point in time? Do you know there are people who are living in abject fear over tomorrow's event? They're fearful. The gods are angry. We we must have done something wrong. We're gonna die. We're all gonna die. Look, look, the sun is being darkened, we're going to die. Fear. There are people looking at the event of tomorrow going, This is it. This is it. The world's over. This is it. No more. End of the world. Fear. God is sovereign over the events of life. So, as Christ burst upon the scene of the upper room, do not be afraid. The Lord of heaven. And earth lives, rules, and reigns. Secondly, God's sovereign over men. You see, what's interesting about Claudius Lysias, even after we say all these things, I don't think he's a Christian. There's no statement of faith, there's no baptism, there's no... And Paul took him at that very hour and baptized him and his family, like with the Philippian jailer. There's no record anywhere of the fact that this man uttered a statement like the Roman centurion. Surely, this man is the Son of God as he watches Christ die upon the cross. There's no statement. He's just a man in a position. That God uses. Do you realize how many hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of people God is using this moment for His purpose? See, it's not just us. You know, we talk about that, don't we? You know, that the, you know, God has plans for us. The Jeremiah 29 passage, the Romans 8 passage. God is working out His purposes and so on. And sure, yeah, we think about it. Of course He has purposes for us. But He has plans and purposes for unbelievers too. He has plans and purposes for Kim Jong-il. He has plans and purposes for Vladimir Putin. He has plans and purposes for every single human being, and they are all submitting to His control. Else, we ought to stop reading Psalm 93. We ought to stop reading that the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. Yeah, He reigns over everything, over everybody. See, Claudius Lysias is there to show us. Here is this Roman soldier who doesn't utter a statement of faith at all, yet God uses him unwittingly by him. He doesn't even know it. Prosper the gospel of his son. Third, It shows us that God is sovereign even over empires. There is but one empire in Acts chapter 23. It's the Roman Empire. Greatest power upon earth. Prevailed its will upon its subjects. It can't literally from from a human point of view, it cannot be stopped. It will take what it wants to take. It will do what it wants to do. It will advance where it wants to advance. But even this Roman Empire is in the hands of an almighty sovereign God who is using it. Let's go to a Roman court system where the Gospel will be proclaimed. Let's go to the Roman appeal to Caesar that was the right of every natural born Roman citizen. Let's use that as a means to promote the gospel. Let's show this empire that even their own rules and regulations are under the awesome, amazing control of a sovereign God who will use even the empires of this world for His plans and for His purposes. So the next time you read that Kim Jong-il has another missile that can reach another hundred miles than what the last one could, just remember whose hands he's in. Next time you read of Vladimir Putin doing this or that, or you read of some Iman doing this or that, or declaring this or that, just remember Whose hands they're in? Do you know whose hands they're in? Your Father's hands. Because they're in one and you're in another. And nothing can grasp you out of His hands. And God's people say. Father, again, thank you. We need this. We need it today. Before the events of tomorrow, before the the men and women of this world, before the nations of this world, we need to know again and be reminded from your word, you are sovereign. And from this unique place, from this unique perspective, from this very interesting character out of the pages of Scripture, we see your sovereignty again. Thank you for ruling and reigning over everything. In Christ's name, God's people again proclaim, Amen.